when I came to Baltimore, it was like a complete shock. I went from being one of zero black people in the school to being one of like many, like being a 99.9% black middle school, black high school. Um, so then it was like, whoa, I'm black again. Because <laughs> the whole time in Virginia, I was like, oh, I'm white. This is Local Color. I'm Jason V. Today's guest is Bilfina Yawan, a womanist, an activist, and a writer. As far as her titles go, Bilfina will tell you womanist is always first. A refugee of the Second Liberian Civil War, Bilfina came with her family to the States in 2001. Believing that West is best, Bilfina learned the West was full of tricky identity politics, ignorance, and reverence for her culture, and the amount of pull a Western education has back home in Liberia. Stay tuned. Before she was a teenager, Bofina had traveled further than some do in their lifetime. I was born in Liberia um, during the Second uh, Civil War. And then we fled Liberia and went to Ivory Coast. So a lot of times when people say home, I'm thinking about both at the same time, um, just because my home was split between the two. Um, And so I came to the United States as a refugee in 2001. And so when we came back, um, going home wasn't really an option on the table because we fled. Even though home may be a loaded concept to Bilfina, Liberia is where she's from, and Liberian is how she identifies. I asked her what she remembered of home. I think mostly the food. <laughs> There's something so different about the food is so good. You know, you know, African food is so delicious, but it's an extra good when everything is fresh um, and you get everything. Because I remember back home. I mean, now things are different because it's 2018. But if you went to go cook, most likely you got all of that ingredients that day fresh and you could taste that. You could taste the love. And we eat big and we eat as a collective. And so food was always a bonding experience that I remember back home. And my mom had a restaurant as well. So I was just always eating. Um, and then I think the, the next thing is the weather. It, it's warm. It's really, really warm. So I hate the winters here. Um, and, and just community, I think. Um, we never really stayed in the house. If you were more likely always at somebody's house, a friend's house, outside um, playing hopscotch, you were doing something outside of the house. And your parents really wasn't worried about where you were just because of how close-knit the community is. Um, and so I think those are the key parts of home that I remember the most. Now, you mentioned that your mother had owned a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Was it... Um uncommon for a woman to own her own business? Sort of, kind of. Um, what made it better for her was that it was a food business, you know, because people um, associate women with cooking and, do- you know, domestic things. And so she had that where it was like, oh, you're cooking. But now that I think about it, yeah, at the time, a lot of women were cooking and um, and, and whether it was feeding the community through having like a vendor kind of thing. But no one actually had an entire building structure. So yeah, my mom was doing the damn thing. Now I think about it. Yeah, she was fly. Bilfina took those memories with her as her family fled Liberia. A second civil war broke out when Liberian dissidents invaded from neighboring Guinea. Bilfina's family was on the wrong side of the civil war, but it was for the right reasons. Her grandfather was an activist. He was threatened multiple times by the government um, because he spoke against what was happening um, to the people at the hands of the government, right? And so he was imprisoned. Um, they set our family house on fire. Um, they wanted to behead him. Like all these you know, things that the government was attempting to do. 
The Liberian government didn't like her grandfather's activism, and I wanted Delfina to dig a bit deeper into what his activism was all about. Some of it had to do with Americo-Liberian relations that we'll get to soon. In addition to that, there was also a lot of greed and corruption. Like Charles Taylor was the president at the time, who he is currently actually serving, I think, over 99 years um, for crimes against humanity, right? Because of what he did during the Liberia Civil War. And so my grandfather was basically saying, like, because there are rebels just killing people. I mean, everyone um, could get killed. And so he was saying, like, what are we doing to our people? Like, we have to stop. Um, this is evil. And so him saying that, and then my grandfather adopted over 32 kids as well. So he he used his, um, he was in the army, so he was also in the army, and he did have status and wealth, and that's something that I always acknowledge um, because my story is a little different as a result of that. But he had a huge compound, and he brought all these little, Literally, people could walk from the street and be like, I don't have a home. And so he was he was actively working and speaking um, against the government and the, the crimes they were committing in a time when it was like, how dare you even question? Um, and so as a result of that, he became a target because they kept saying, you need to stop. They kept warning him. And he was like, no, like, I have to speak up for my people. Delfina's grandfather stood against a regime that had already proven how close they could get to him when they burned down his family's house. As selfless and patriotic as her grandfather was, I also wondered if anybody in Belfina's family felt like they were getting pulled into something they wanted no part of. Was anybody in your family ever resentful of what he did? Because, it, I mean, it sounds like, like he was the reason you guys had to leave. Was anyone ever like, why did you, why'd you put your family through this? To my knowledge, I haven't heard anyone say it out loud. They might. Somebody, I'm pretty sure there are people who's like, yo, you could have chilled out. But to, to, to my knowledge, no one has said it out loud yet. Um, because I think everyone is still processing <laughs> to this day. I don't know if all of my family members have truly processed that pro- that whole migration. And I think because he did so much to make sure we were comfortable and so, well, barely comfortable, but um, that everyone's like, all right, cool. And we never, no one ever questioned my grandfather too as like the head of the household. It was like, well, that's what he's doing. I guess we are doing it then. As the government closed in on Vilfina's grandfather and by association Vilfina and her family, her grandfather made arrangements for them to flee. She didn't quite understand what was going on. Only they were leaving home and not coming back. Delfina and her family settled for a time in Ivory Coast. She was in a new country, but there were some comforts of home. The main difference was language. You know, uh, it's uh, French is spoken in Ivory Coast, um, and Liberia is Liberian English, a colloquia, or whatever your ethnic group is. Um, so there wasn't too much of a big difference. My grandfather was already living in Ivory Coast, so he was established. Um, most of our family members were there, people who had fled. And so when we went in, we basically were in Ivory Coast, but we were like a little Liberian neighborhood in Ivory Coast. And because so many people were fleeing places like Liberia and Sierra Leone and going to bordering countries, um, it was common in somewhere like Ivory Coast for there to exist so many different cultures as a result. In times of war, neighboring countries open their borders and allow those affected to take shelter. I was positive native Ivorians would have had contemptuous opinions of their new neighbors. Bofina didn't seem to think it was a thing. Not during that time. It's changed, though. Liberia politics has changed, and there's a huge um, struggle in Liberia right now around Liberian Americans who leave 
American come and resettle home. That's a huge conflict right now happening as a result of our history. But at the time, no, because everyone was mainly thinking about it was war. If a war was happening in your country and a country was close to you, most likely all, everybody was in war. And so it was never a thing of like, y'all need to go home. It was like, we're all unstable. Someone needs to go somewhere to be safe. Um, but I think politics have changed a bit now. In answering my last question, Rafina mentioned something interesting, the tenuous relationship that is African-Black-American relations. Especially interesting is Liberia itself. I could give you another brief history lesson, but Delfina had me covered. Liberia's history is unique in that um, while we weren't colonized, um, we were, right? By It was actually free black enslaved uh, uh, people who colonized us. Kind of inspired by Marcus Garvey. They brought um, free enslaved black people and they're like, where are we going to go? Huh? And then a white person clicked the place on you know the map of Africa and it was Liberia. And so James R. Uh, Monrovia, which is the capital's name after James Monroe, our constitution is modeled after America's constitution. Our flag is the American flag, but with one star. Um, we celebrate American holidays in Liberia. But the issue became the free enslaved black people that came to Liberia were oppressing the indigenous people. Indigenous Liberians could not own land, we could not vote or anything like that. All of those powers were given to the American Liberians. Mm, it'd be your own people. And so that conflict became of like, how dare you repeat the very same thing that was done to you in America to us? And so our civil war, while a lot of people talk about like the greed of it, was it stemmed from that conflict between indigenous Liberian and American Liberians. And now today, a lot of um, Li- Liberians no longer want American Liberians to go back and get jobs and, and, and be involved in politics. Indigenous Liberians didn't want American Liberians in positions of power, though there was some irony baked into that line of thinking. Just knowing that you're from America, went to an American university, is like, they're going to put you here. They're going to put you higher than everybody else. Whereas there are people on the continent who's been doing the work um, and are well-versed in their education is not seen as enough because it doesn't have America attached. And so I, I do see why um, the people are hesitant and scared for a repeat of what happened to happen again. Do you feel like that premium placed on American education is, um, do you think it's beneficial or do you feel like it, it's kind of a, a pitfall of Liberian culture? No, it's a pitfall. And the crazy thing is not even just Liberians. Most African countries would tell you this. Um, it's it's based on colonialism and like this idea that, that anything touched by the West or anything Western, it's somehow better than what exists on the continent. And so um, one of the things that I would say, because people always say, well, do you want to go back home and do you want to work? And I said, yes, but I would want to go back to school in Liberia um, because I think it's important for me to make sure that I'm not taking the Western blueprint um, and basically wanting to recreate the West in Liberia and instead get educated by my people in the same same level um and so that they see that this american education does not mean anything really Rofina thinks an american degree shouldn't hold the weight it does but when she first came to the states from liberia Rofina had a completely different opinion of the west this is local color i'm jason v we'll be right back This is Local Color. I'm Jason V. Before the break, writer and activist Bilfina Yuan told the story of her early life. She fled her home country of Liberia and for a time lived in Ivory Coast. 
In 2001, Vilfina and her family emigrated to the United States. For Vilfina, that was like winning the lottery. She thought it was the promised land, and everything would be better because she was in America now. By today's standards, Vilfina had a somewhat easy time adjusting to life in the U.S. It was before 9-11, when the country wasn't as polarized about open borders. Her family settled in Virginia, first in Alexandria, then Fairfax. It was a mostly white town, and Vilfina was presented a dilemma. I had never had to identify as black before. Like, that was until I came to the U.S. All of a sudden, it was like, oh, wait, I'm a black person. And then I'm, like, thrusted into a super white neighborhood, super white. Mind you, we was poor, okay? We were, shit, we was dumpster diving. That's how bad, like, coming to this country and having to adjust was. But I was in mainly white schools. After a while, the pressure was too much for Bilfina. She was being identified as black, but she wasn't. And she couldn't be Liberian anymore because she's in America now. So who should she have been? I ain't gonna lie to y'all. Lord, we thank God for a glow up because I was just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm white. Mommy, can you perm my hair? Because that's all I knew. Like, that was my experience to, um, I'm just glad that's a scary time, a thing of the past. It was all Bofina knew, and she'd be quickly corrected. Bofina's family stayed in Virginia until 2005. When I came to Baltimore... It was like a complete shock. I went from being one of zero, zero black people in the school to being one of like many, like being a 99.9% black middle school, black high school. So then it was like, whoa, I'm black again. Because <laughs> the whole time in Virginia, I was like, oh, I'm white. And then I get to Baltimore, I'm like, oh shit, black. I had a reintroduction into blackness and what that meant. And then I was lucky enough getting to middle school and high school. You know, all the African kids take all the AP and GT and honors classes. So, of course, I was hanging with nothing but African kids. And we all got bullied together. So, at least I was like, I'm not by myself. And so it got better because I had a community of other Africans around me. Connecting to the motherland is the wave now. Actual African culture? It ain't always Wakanda forever. As Wilfina progressed through college, she reconnected more and more with her African heritage and found a new identity to align herself with. I realized I was like, okay, feminism sounds weird. I don't like it. Like, I didn't know what I didn't like about it, but I was like, I don't like it. It just doesn't, it's not something my, I'm identifying with. Um, and I had a mentor. Her name is Miss Joan Mays. I owe this woman so much. Um, she was a womanist. And um, she was teaching this grad level class and it was called um, Womanism and the Black Feminist Thought and she was like you should take this class. Bilfina took the class and digested the writings and philosophies of womanists such as Alice Walker. Chief among those philosophies was that womanism wasn't a philosophy. It's not an academic thing. It's about lived experiences with black women centered. Womanist is an identifier that Bilfina embraced more proudly. But what does it mean to be a womanist? Womanism does not prioritize any one form of oppression, right? Um, and it does not just prioritize gender oppression. While the experiences of black womanhood is centered, as a womanist, you understand that multiple forms of oppressions are happening at once. All of those oppressions have to be addressed at once, right? And so it's not just enough for me to have rights as a black woman. I still, as a womanist, I have to be a prison abolitionist. I have to be anti-imperialism. I have to be anti-capitalism because those are forms of oppressions that exist across the board, right? And so it starts with black womanhood first and then the entire black community and then every uh, everybody else. And that is kind of like the hierarchy of how we address issues when it comes to using a womanist lens. There's another part of the population that are fake womanists, or rather they can't be womanists, even if they say they are. Can a man 
man be a womanist? Mm -mm. (laughs) No, no, no. Dolphina says men can have womanist values, but it's in the name. A guy just can't be a womanist. Dolphina's encountered men entering womanist spaces thinking they're helping. They think they have the answers to our problems, but their line of thinking is what causes the conflicts. Though she has no desire to resolve conflicts, at least with those type of men, it's part of her job at Restorative Response Baltimore. We do um, restorative justice and restorative practices work in Baltimore and like conflict resolution as a bigger umbrella. And so as outreach coordinator, my job is really to get the word out there. I'm the mouthpiece and phase of the organization. In schools, I advocate for principals to move away from suspending, expelling, arresting students and instead to use a restorative practices approach, which we use and it's called a community conference. In the juvenile justice system, at all levels from the Baltimore Police Department to the state's attorney if a youth is arrested um, or accused of a crime and we can get everyone involved so the youth is the person who's done the harm and the person who's been harmed and we come to an agreement and the agreement is followed the case is closed the youth is no longer prosecuted and then in the community wherever there's a form of conflict um, it can be referred to us. Justice is something Dauphine is passionate about so passionate that even before she was Restorative Response Baltimore's outreach coordinator, when she was in college learning what it meant to be a womanist, she was also an activist. We'll explore Bilfina's community organizing when we come back. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. This is Local Color. I'm Jason V. Before the break, my guest Bilfina Yawan talked about her job as outreach coordinator at Restorative Response Baltimore. Before she even graduated from college, however, Bilfina was interested in restorative justice and the struggle people of color face to even get regular justice. Once I got to college, I, I started to really, really interrogate blackness and what it meant to exist as a black woman. That was something that I didn't really start doing research on until college. And then most important was how do I bring these two identities together? There are a lot of Africans who deny their blackness, which there's a lot there to unpack, but I've never denied. So I am both black and I'm both Liberian and it's happening simultaneously and they're not separate from each other. The more I started to do that research, the more I started to really think about the struggles. You know, African parents, like, you don't want to be like an akata. Akatas are lazy. Pull up your, you know, all that stuff. So you think the ways that you're exposing your household to blackness, is it, it's very um, demeaning. And, and you don't really think about black struggle and what black people have been through to get to this point. And so it was college when I started to do that and really be frank about myself, about the oppressions that are faced. And so I started organizing in college. Um, it wasn't until 2014 when I co-led uh, Occupy Towson, which we took over the president's office for 10 hours, um, that I kind of was like pushed into direct action work. The deeper Bilfina got into direct action and activism, the closer it led her to restorative response Baltimore. Restorative justice may be the safest way to have safe streets. Earlier, Bilfina mentioned womanism rejects all forms of oppression, including colorism. Colorism was a topic she discussed at length on Drum Booty Radio, the podcast by host and past guest Abdul Ali. Hey, Abdul. <laughs> I know you're going to listen to this. <laughs> and he... he uh... Or the, the conversation that you guys were talking about where it was um, colorism and its effects. Mm-hmm. We talked about it, you know, in the course of this interview, but how has your perception of colorism or like your experiences with colorism changed over the years? Was it worse when you were younger? Is it worse now? What was it like? Well, when I was younger, it was definitely worse because, like I said, I was growing up in a very white area. I, I can admit I had a hard time adjusting to being a dark-skinned girl in the midst of a whole bunch of white girls. Um, and I did dream about having lighter skin. Like, that was part of growing up. And I even remember I shared on um, Drum Booty about, like, having a crush on this little boy. And he was like, 
no and i was like what and then he kind of was basically like you dark and i was just like oh, okay i mean fuck him you know but that was like my introduction into being like oh snaps like I'm darker. What does that mean? And even younger, like, I didn't know what to call it. I was just like, oh, it sucks. Like, I wish I had lighter skin and longer straight hair. Um, And as an adult, we're seeing the impact in a lot of African countries. Like, I've been um, watching a lot of documentaries where, like, people are getting skin cancers and and going very unhealthy lengths. I mean, look at Vibe Cartel. Like, bro, bro, we know, we know. You jump, like, 30 shades. Um, And so, wow, I no longer struggle with colorism i am still impacted by colorism right and then i also still see the impact not just in america but also like globally Hmm. and what's that impact globally oh my goodness light skinned is the right skinned and i mean india there's issues happening there brazil um um there's a whole caste system um in brazil based on skin color even on the continent nigeria like we all make jokes like oh your auntie knuckles don't match the rest of her hands we know what that means like we all know what that means like she's bleaching and it's like um it's 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 normal. Like I remember my aunt was using this lotion. She was like, Oh, it's just lotion. I looked, I was like, No, girl, you like just it's not just oh, I'm evening my skin tone, like you're bleaching. And so we're seeing that. Um and and I see it every day. Even in Liberia, infighting because of blood and skin keeps those crabs in the bucket. One, we have ethnic groups, right? And those ethnic groups <laughs> well beef like fighting like we think about the biafra war we think about Rwanda, all of that but in terms of of beauty there are still parts where there are people who are, are are bleaching their skin tone like on the continent because of these beauty standards um and they might look a little differently because beauty is a little different like my mom used to tell me like having a gap in your teeth meant you you know you were prettier like women who had like little rolls in their neck like being a little heavier and a little curvier means you're prettier because my mom always say like in america like because i'm slim like i'm good but if i was back home she was like they'd be like do you eat like are you okay what's going on and she was like the beauty is different or even like having darker gums like that is beautiful in back home where in america it's not from occupation to beauty standards, Eurocentrism has ravaged Africa, and a new occupation is quietly underway. China owns half of Africa, and so, like, it, the, the, the same neocolonialistic things that we've been suffering from is coming right back um, to the people. So, yeah, it's just getting worse. Do you ever think that there's a time, or perhaps that time is coming, where Africans... Um, understand and realize that look we can't have so much outside influence shifting and you know calling the shots on like what our culture is supposed to be some african countries are i know like um a few african countries have like rejected certain things from like european countries or china or america but still globally like our country is still heavily ruled by outsiders specifically i'm gonna speak specifically in the west my mom was telling me in liberia right now most of the businesses are owned by chinese people she was like the chinese people can speak our language better than some of us and some of them aren't letting liberians into the store they're putting curfews on people and it's harder for liberia because of our relationship with the u.s right like there was a time where most liberians we could just come to the u.s with a visa like we didn't because we were basically liberia uh, america's stepchild right and so we had these certain privileges well not anymore more the the corruption in so many african countries and the need to have outsiders come from like this wanting to have immediate change and immediate 
um, a money and not caring that you're selling half of your country in order to get that. But in addition to that, we have Africans or uh, from coming from America who are coming back to African countries and creating businesses. And those businesses are not even based in Africa. We think about um, Akon. Everybody praises Akon for light Africa movement. No, that shit is based on credit. It is not good. Like I've seen so many people who are uninformed about what he's actually, what the people are actually paying. Like, oh my God, Akron is lighting Africa. No, my G is not for free. Like go read up on it. So it's like, even with that, you have a son of Africa who is coming to do business and his business is owned by Chinese people. Yes, it's Akon's face. But if you look at the companies and the construction behind it, it's, it's not African owned. It goes back again to outside so a quick look at akon's lighting africa site shows heavy support from european and chinese ventures it's the reality we live in and the alternative is parts of africa not getting reliable electricity the road to true freedom is still traveled even in 2018 before 2018 is over Bofina has a few things to cross off her list i think this year for me is just focus on perfecting the things that i already do um, um, cause I've been very intentional about like the projects that I've gotten into. My focus has really been like transformative justice work and then, you know, womanist workshop and like building those kind of relationships. And I've been wanting to just, so I'll keep doing the work that I'm currently doing and just hopefully doing it better than I have been doing, um, and paying my rent on time. Okay. <laughs> Today's episode of Local Color was written, produced, narrated, edited, and published by me, Jason V., Follow Local Color on Instagram at Local Color Podcast. You can also like Local Color on Facebook. Head to Local Color's website, localcolorpodcast.com, where you can listen to the entire catalog. Also, please subscribe to Local Color on iTunes to get those push notifications when new episodes drop. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason V, and I'll be back with more Local Color. Local Color.